Okay, everybody. I have something really cool to tell you about. If you haven't heard yet about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain here. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will uh, distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one single place. Now, the way that you can do this is you got to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. And then you can get started. It's really fun. We just switched over recently here at All Too Real 2, and I'm enjoying it so far. So be sure to check it out and uh, let us know what you think. Okay, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of All Too Real 2. My name is Michael E. Cullen II, and with me, as always, is... That's Matthew... Uh, man, I'm bad with the names today. All right, it's Matthew Haas. Matthew Haas. That's a good name. It's all right. Yeah. I mean, you've had it most of your life. <laughs> well, all of my life. <laughs> <laughs> It means uh, hair, like a rabbit in German, like, you know, H-H-A-R-E. Nice. That's what it means. That is, that is nice. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and hoppy. And, um, <laughs> so today on the show, we have a all-too interview with actor, director, um, teacher, um, musician, um, Rennie Temple. Um, he's a guy you might know from one of the most famous episodes of All in the Family. Um, he was in the, uh, the Draft Dodger episode, um, which was a Christmas episode one year. Um, he was, he played the Draft Dodger. And, um, he's also directed, um, many, uh, television shows, uh, such as Growing Pains and, uh, Head of the Class and a bunch of other things back in the uh, 80s and 70s. And, uh, worked with people such as Kirk Cameron and Leonardo DiCaprio on those shows and Billy Connolly on the other show. And, um, stuff, um, we talk a little bit about some of that. We also, uh, you know, Here's some, there's some info about his early days where he was, uh, part of a improv group and also, um, when he was up, when he was like in a, 
huge folk band called um, the Highwaymen. So um, yeah, so uh, it'll it's it's very fun. Um, we talk about improv a lot and everything too. So he's a really cool guy. We talk a little bit about politics, um, a lot of, a lot of cool things. Um, hopefully you'll enjoy this uh, interview. Um, I I really liked talking to him. I could talk to him again anytime. Um, but anyways, here's my interview with Rennie Temple. First, I just wanted to thank you for your time today. Um, I, got, I, I got so much time, but <laughs> <laughs> we could do a four-hour show for all I can. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of time, how you how are you uh, dealing with like everything that's going on in the world? Well, if you want to talk politics, whew, and. <laughs> Let's keep, you know, get rid of that son of a bitch. Um, yeah. And uh, and keep him gone for a long time. I, I'm just hoping I got to start some sort of campaign to have the media just block him out. No more rallies, no more airing speeches, no more comments. Just gone. You know, just move, move him away. That's all he and, wants is attention. Uh, and other than that, you know, the COVID stuff, they're excited about the vaccine and, you know, yeah. I'm ready to get going Yeah, because I've been teaching improv here in Bend and I was also forming an improv company and uh, we had to stop Oh wow! Uh, before we actually got anything going. Uh, well, no, I did teach, but then I had to stop. Yeah. And uh, they kept saying, you know, well, can you do it on Zoom? And I said, you know, you just can't do improv on Zoom. <laughs> I mean, you actually have to be with somebody and yeah. look them in the eye and talk to them. I'm good. How's everything out there in, in beautiful Cleveland? Um, it's uh, Toledo, but yeah, it's good. Yeah. 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 Hey, congratulations, by the way, on all your little, I've, I've been voting like crazy on the, uh, on your podcast awards and stuff. Oh, thank you. And, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I think that's a good thing. Hope, hopefully we win if we don't. Oh, well. <laughs> It, it, well, is, you're, it is you're what it is. <laughs> Just a minute. Okay. <laughs> I bet you can't do that. <laughs> no, I have no hair. So, <laughs> so yeah, no, um, I, I choose to shave my head. So, um, yeah, the, the, um, it's easier to deal with. So, uh, the, uh, um, so why don't you, uh, just tell us a little bit about how you got started in, um, in like, uh, entertainment and everything. We're, we're actually rolling. Yep, we're good. We're rolling. I'm rolling the whole time just to be safe. Everything yeah. I've said. Oh no. No, I mean um, I can I can cut it whenever, so I'm good. So, I see. Yeah. Um, let's see. How did I get started in show business? Uh, I always wanted to be an actor. Uh, when I was a little kid, I grew up, you know, in the Jackie Gleason, Sid Caesar uh, stuff on television. When I was a little boy, and I said I want to do that, and um, and then one day. My father took me into a haberdashery store. For those who don't remember, they make hats. And um, I went in there. He was buying a hat. And was, it was the first time I saw one of those uh, three-way mirrors where you could look ahead and look to the side and see yourself in a three-way mirror. And when I looked straight ahead, you know, I looked fine. I looked like a nice-looking guy because I was used to the way I looked looking in the mirror. When I looked over to the side and saw the side of my face from both sides, I went, oh, God, what an ugly guy. This is, you know, this guy is never going to be an actor. 
because my my whole knowledge about acting was, you know, 77 Sunset Strip, uh, you know, uh, Rawhide, uh, Gunsmoke. I mean, you know, these were, you know, and there were always sort of good looking guys who were the leads. I never paid attention to the character actors who always worked when the stars weren't working. Uh, so, so I just said, well, I, I, can't, I can't be an actor. Uh, about that time, the Kingston Trio came out, uh, a couple, you know, about 10 years later. And um, I went and saw them at the Maryland Fieldhouse. Uh, I lived in Washington, D.C. My father was an admiral in the Navy, and we traveled around a bit. No, he was an admiral, admiral in the Army. Oh. He was a very confused man. Uh, <laughs> he, um, he, uh, and we were in Washington, D.C., where he worked in the Pentagon at that time. And uh, went and saw the Kingston Trio, and it was... Most people don't know the Kingston Trio was really the origination of college concerts, what became known as college concerts. Before that, it was just string quartets doing Mozart and stuff. But here you walked into a field house with 30,000 screaming people. And way down there on the bottom, this little square were these three guys and a bass player singing all these songs and people were yelling and singing along. And I said, I want to do that. <laughs> I can do that. I can learn a bunch of chords and do that. And uh, and then I'll sing my way into being an actor, you know, like Pat Boone, Bobby Darren, all of your favorite actors. <laughs> because that's how much I knew about acting. Um, so I did, you know, got into folk music after two years of college. Some friends said, hey, we can go sing in a, in a bar in St. Petersburg behind the shotguns. And I said, okay, <laughs> another wise life choice. And, um, we did that, and long story short, we became the Highwaymen, uh, where we started doing Ed Sullivan shows and having records, and Michael Rowe, the Boat Ashore, and all of that stuff. And um, I sort of got lost about being an actor. I, you know, we were just doing college shows and TV shows and records and concerts, and you know, but performing in front of two thousand or thirty thousand people, uh, depending on the show. And then, you know, the Beatles kind of came along and folk music kind of went away. And I didn't know what to do. I did like six months of stand-up comedy. And God, that was just awful. I mean, it's just pulling teeth to try to do that stuff. Yeah. And then a friend said, why don't you, uh, hey, there's this manager, a uh, friend of mine who is going to uh, be teaching uh, improv in, a, in their apartment up here on 110th Street in new york city and i said what's improv i had no idea it was brand new at the time yeah and we took the old viola spolin book and she sat down and we did exercises and when i walked in i recognized a couple of the people there was about yeah, maybe nine or ten people in this workshop uh living room and um i recognized them from commercials and they said you know you really ought to be doing commercials this face should be doing commercials. Uh, and I said, I have no idea how did that happens. And they gave me the news and I got headshots printed up and went around and did the agents thing because they gave me numbers and stuff. And um, it took me about nine months to do my first commercial and about three months to do my second commercial. And then I didn't stop working for like a dozen years, even more doing commercials. I just 
made a fortune. I actually became a type. When you walk into an audition and they have the little drawings and the storyboards yeah. with little pictures of what the actors are supposed to be doing in the commercial, in the corner it would say Rennie Temple type. <laughs> I never got those, but yeah, <laughs> that's, <laughs> but that's what they said. I've heard, and, that, uh, I've heard that a lot from people who become types that they uh, they'll audition for the uh, gigs and it'll say it's so and so type and then they don't get it. Even, yeah, even yeah, though they are so and so. It's weird, you know. They have the you know the little glasses on my face and everything, you know, in the cartoon, and um, and then it became a thing of oh, I started realizing that there are character actors these days, the Stanley Tucci's and uh, you know those those kind of people who work all the time and are really good and respected and all of that stuff. So I started figuring out that oh, acting is this, and I started doing plays. Uh, the group that was in the living room. Became, after about eh, six, seven weeks, the manager said, well, that's all I know. You know, we're just reading exercises out of the Diolis Olin book uh, about improv in the theater, where improv actually came from, uh, from Diolis Olin. And uh, we said, well, let's just keep going in our, our own living rooms. And we just started rotating. We found that somebody said, hey, <laughs> literally, I know a friend who has a folk club down here on 74th and Amsterdam in New York called The Focus. And we said, well, let's put this on stage. We didn't really know much about the Second City. They were like three or four years ahead of us in Chicago. But we started doing games and seeing what worked on stage and what didn't work. Uh, and pretty soon we had, you know, the Robin Williamses and the Dustin Hoffmans and all these young guys coming in and going, hey, wow, that's pretty good. And we became War Babies. We decided to give ourselves a name. And uh, War Babies seemed to fit a general age group that uh, would work. And also it was the Vietnam War and stuff. So we were uh, a little political, but mostly uh, mostly funny. And Dick Clark and his group uh, came out and scouted us and brought us out to California as a group to do a four-week Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello summer show. And uh, we were the resident zanies like laughing. <laughs> And uh, we went out to California, and at that, at that time I met my wife, Karen Kay, who's an actress, uh, who was in the group. And uh, we were living together, doing all the good things that people who live together do. And uh, she took off kind of like a rocket in L.A., and we sort of looked around and sort of went, wow, you know, we, we could live here. We were like doing, we're out recording bits out by Malibu in the you know, by the ocean and looking at the mountains on one side and the ocean on one side and saying, damn, people live here. <laughs> <laughs> this is nice. And uh, so we stayed. The whole group stayed. We found a theater to work in. We did all the comedy clubs out there, but then found a theater and War Babies cut itself a very significant niche. And in that time, now I'm acting. Now I'm doing commercials. We're doing television shows. We're doing guest star spots. And that just kind of kept going and matriculated into directing television. I did sitcoms uh, for a while, and then uh, I didn't, and <laughs> which, which unfortunately happens. And, um, you know, and we just stuck it up, spent 45 years in L.A., and then said, well, it's time to get out of Dodge. And uh, we came up here to Bend, Oregon. And that 
in 15 glorious minutes. What's this the story of my life? <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> Any, anytime you want to jump in here, Mike. No, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, I, I was just enjoying listening. Um, the uh, So what was it like working like with uh, Annette and, and Frankie? Well, it was strange. I mean, you know, we grew you know, <laughs> up. We saw the beach, the beach blanket movies. And, you know, yeah. Annette Fonatello from my age group was like the first babe that oh, yeah. we saw. You know, as a Mouseketeer. That was my uh, you know, my dad's first crush. He was he always talked yeah. about her when I was a kid. So yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean she you know she had breasts and wore a sweater and this little hat with mouse ears. Yeah. What's not to love? <laughs> yeah. He always used to say she had a nice set of mouse ears, but he wasn't talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed she did. Uh, and it was great. You know, I, they were fine. It was just, you know, it was a summer show and people were coming. It was all edited together. So we were all just doing bits. There was no yeah. live audience. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're sitting in the bleachers next to this old woman and you're kind of watching somebody rehearsing a bit and then filming the bit. And uh, I realized I'm sitting next to Phyllis Diller, who doesn't look anything like Phyllis Diller. lady. And, you know, Bob Hope comes in and he does like 10 minutes and, and he literally walks into the set and everybody goes, Mr. Hope is here. Everything stops. They put him in front of a, a, a set, you know, a backdrop. And he looks looks at the teleprompter and uh, they say, you want to rehearse? He says, no, no, just just roll it. And he knocks off about 15 jokes, you know, about Frankie Avalon <laughs> and being a kid and all that stuff. And uh, he says, OK, I think that's it. Right. And went, Thank you, Mr. Hope. He disappears. <laughs> you, know, you saw Bob Hope for 10 minutes doing what Bob Hope does is just stand there and do it. So it, it was a, it was a fun show to do. Yeah. And it, it really introduced us to Hollywood and television. So, um, yeah, I hadn't realized you were in the highway, man. That's 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 pretty cool, too. When you were just mentioning that, I, I don't know why I didn't realize that. But, yeah, that. <laughs> It's because you didn't do any research. I Mike. did. I did do some, but it didn't come up in the. It didn't come up in the uh, in in the bio that I read. I get my guitar in the corner and say, "Michael wrote the boat ashore." No, no. no, I did. I did do research. Um, I uh, I just didn't find that in there for some reason. But well, yeah, that's, no, that's in cool. the days before time. So yeah, I, I can. I can. I can understand. Yeah, but no, that, that's, I don't that's pretty much cool. of it either. Yeah. No, because I. <laughs> I got into I got into folk music a weird way, like where I it was through the the a Mighty Wind movie. Like I kind of you oh know, god, like, was that, that was a, one of the funniest. That the Mighty Wind is exactly yeah. who we were. Yeah, <laughs> we were those guys. Because <laughs> <laughs> that that's probably my like in my top ten favorite movies of all time. So I kind of I watched that yeah, and then I, I kind of went back and well, found the those, real bands that those, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all of those Guffman I call them Guffman movies, but Christopher yeah. Guestman yeah. I mean, when they came out, I just, I mean, I literally in the, in the first Guffman movie had to make myself stop laughing <laughs> because Christopher Guest and those guys, I mean, it was literally killing me. It was hurting me physically to laugh so much. Those guys, and when they did a mighty win, I went, boy, did they catch this? Yeah. I, was, I mean, this, this is exactly right. <laughs> I was going to ask you how, how close they got it. Yeah. So. Well, I was I, after the Highwaymen. I did a couple of years with the Serendipity Singers, and of course, they were they were one of the nine man groups that they did in A Mighty Wind. Yeah, and it was absolutely perfect. <laughs> you didn't miss a beat. That's cool. Um, <laughs> so um, <laughs> I just I yeah um, with uh, with acting. I mean, I I know that uh, 
the way I discovered you is through All in the Family in the uh, guest yeah. that you did that. That was probably the first time I remember seeing you on TV. And all you kids. boys and girls at home, it's coming up to be Christmas. And that's when the episode always reruns. I know. So make sure you <laughs> you check your TV gods. How, and, uh, how was it working with uh, Rob Reiner and Carol O'Connor and everybody? It was really, you know, at the time, it was absolutely terrifying. It was my first TV show. You know, it was my first, hmm. you know, I mean, we did the Frankie Avalon thing, and that was just, you know, being yeah. stupid and crazy. But now I'm actually playing a draft dodger who comes home and has Christmas dinner with uh, with the bunkers. And because um, I'm an old friend of, uh, of Mike Stivic, Rob Reiner. And uh, it, it was it was just a strange week. You have to understand, in the first place, the week is actually five days. And also, this is their nine-to-five job. You know, I'm walking on into their set and going, look at all this. And this is just, you know, this is what they do. This is their nine-to-five job. And for me, the first thing I did was I looked at the wall. And the wall, that kind of off-yellow look, is actually a million little dots like a Monet painting. Oh, wow. Uh, it's just it's a million little different colored dots when you're standing, you know, right up close to it. And uh, that was interesting. And then, of course, I sat in the bunker chair, uh, <laughs> which was a great treat. The first, in a five-day show like that, you do table readings first, and then you block stuff, and then you block for the cameras, and then you actually shoot the show over the course of five weeks. So the first thing you're doing is at a table reading where everybody sits around a long table and we're in a rehearsal space where the floor design is, is taped out on the show and taped out on the floor. And I sit down, I bring a tape recorder with me because I'm, I'm not, this is like the show's into its eighth, seventh season or something, you know, everybody knows who all of the family is and they're doing a Christmas show about a draft dodger, you know, who, who yeah. has dinner with them. Uh, during the Vietnam War. And um, I sat down across from O'Connor and I, I wanted to record the lines of the dress rehearsal. So I'd have, you know, all of us kind of reading and talking together for myself. I would have this on tape and I put it down in front of me, kind of over the side and I turned it on and Carol O'Connor sits right across from the table from me and he says, uh, what's that? <laughs> and I never dawned on me. I had to have like, a reason. So, <laughs> so I, I said, well, it, it, it helps me learn my lines, which is doesn't make any sense <laughs> in any language. And uh, he reaches across and puts his finger on the off button and says, well, we don't need that. Click. Wow. And, and I went, oh, boy. <laughs> I pick up the tape recorder, put it down on the floor. Now, that was one episode. The one of them was sitting in the kitchen set during camera blocking day on Thursday, and they're doing some scene in the living room that I'm not in, and I'm sitting in the kitchen set, and they're rehearsing the cameras and setups and stuff. And I'm going through my script, and Carol O'Connor kind of walks by and says, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just going over my lines. And he takes my notebook, and remember, this is one day before shooting. He closes the book and says, if you don't know it now, you don't know it. I went, oh, God, kill me. Oh, <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> now, Carol O'Connor, I'm sure, is a great guy. I'm only seeing him for five days. Yeah. Now, I don't know if he was doing it just to bug me, whether he was cranky, whether he was having an off week, 
or whether that's just the way he has fun with guest stars who come on the show <laughs> who have never done a TV show before. I don't know. But when we were doing the show, the, the incredible feeling of working with O'Connor and that whole group was when he looked across the table at you as Archie Bunker, as we were shooting the show, and he looks at you across the table and he realizes that I'm a draft dodger from the United States Army in the middle of Vietnam. That's when he has the discovery. And he says, you mean to tell me that you're a draft dodger from the U.S. of A? I wanted to die. The look of hate that he could generate eye to eye with you, it was absolutely staggering. Wow. I mean, it, it was just the acting ability, the, the, that power you felt of somebody who really hated your guts because you were a traitor to the United States as far as Archie Punker was concerned, uh, was just staggering. There were so many moments like that. Actually, an interesting thing you you had, I saw on your uh, your uh, Facebook page, we were discussing it. it. When we were rehearsing, I saw Rob Ryder and Archie Bunker, uh, Archie, uh, Carol, uh, over in the corner all the time, kind of going over their scripts and they were scratching stuff out and they were putting stuff in. And, you know, and then they come back to the table and we'd rehearse and, you know, do that. They did that a number of times when we were in the rehearsal process. I went over to Rob, who's supposed to be my best friend. Uh, <laughs> we're best friends. And uh, I said, what are, you, what are you and Carol doing over there? And he says, oh, well, you got to understand, we're shooting in front of a live audience here. And most of the live audience comes from Orange County, which is in California, a really conservative area. And they think Archie Bunker is right, that he's correct. And what Carol and I do is we sort of make sure that the laughs come at the expense of Archie Bunker rather than them laughing because he's right. And so it was a very careful dance they were doing with the Archie Bunker character to make sure that we knew that as genuine as this character was, as flawed as this character was, what, what basically a nice guy, kind of he was, you know, this family guy, this hardworking blue collar guy, that when it came to politics and bigotry and uh, racism and all of that stuff, that he wasn't right. So they wanted to make sure the crowd didn't laugh and applaud at the wrong places. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I thought. I went, wow, yeah. okay. I mean, that, that that's that's good that they did that. I mean, because even with that, he did sadly now, especially with people that are looking back on it with like rose colored glasses on him or something, they think he right. they think he was the hero of the show, and they don't understand the fact that he wasn't. I mean, sure, he did have his good points. I mean, mind you, I mean. Hitler was even charismatic. It doesn't mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, that he was the good guy, you know? <laughs> we love Adolf. We love us all Adolf. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> People just don't well, there, there's that. A, this, there's a scene, at the, there's like three seconds at the end of the, sh uh, at the end, towards the end of the show, and I hope your your folks, you know, your audience sees it because it really is a terrific show. Won an Emmy. And yeah, I think if, if people haven't seen it, they might want to just pause this now and go, watch it and then come back and listen. To yeah, actually, yeah, you can go yeah. on YouTube. Just yeah. just type in uh, yeah. All in the Family Draft Dodger and you can watch the whole show. Um, 
and you'll love my hair. My hair is just, you think this hair looks great. Boy, that hair looks great in the 70s. <laughs> uh, it, it was like I had to take two trips to walk into the house. Um, he, when he first finds out I'm a draft dodger and everybody says, you know, you got to let him stay, you know, let it go for tonight. It's Christmas. Come on, have dinner. He walks away from the table and Edith goes uh, after him and says, come on, Archie, please sit down and have dinner. And uh, he says, I can't do it. I, 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 I can't. I, I got to work this thing out. And, she's, and she says, come on, Archie, please do it for me. And he turns to her and the camera shot turns to him looking at her. And in that two or three seconds where they look at each other, you can see the whole life relationship of Archie and Edith. Yeah. The love, the love, the dedication. God, I tear up. I'm I doing it now. Uh, those three or four seconds where they're in silence looking at each other when he decides, okay, I'm going to do it for Edith. I'm going back to the table and have Christmas dinner. It's staggering. To me, it's, just, it's, it's a moment of film and video where these two terrific actors can show you an entire life in a three-second glance. Yeah, Jean Stapleton, I mean, she could she could give a, yeah. look, a look and it would say so much more than, like, words. Oh, it, it was just, it was obviously an amazing experience. Yeah. And being my first TV show. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good one for being your first one to at least break your legs on and stuff and everything. Yeah, and my wife's first show was a Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, wow. So, where she played a sportscaster <laughs> who comes in and, and and doesn't do any violent sports, doesn't cover football, doesn't, doesn't cover <laughs> hockey, doesn't know who Fran Tarkington is, you know, for the Minnesota group. And uh, so, and the both of us had a, you know, a great experience, her doing Mary Tyler and me doing the, All in the Family. Wow. And we thought, well, we've got it made now. Yeah. And then, you know, we went on to do, you know, Love American Style. <laughs> <laughs> Some other shows that were so ter- yeah. terrific. <laughs> but at least it was something. I mean, yeah, the um, I, I, I see that you directed, like, um, I was a big fan of Head of the Class, and I saw you directed an episode of that. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know why. I, I really loved that show when I was a when I was a kid. Well, it was a good group comedy yeah. put together, you know, nice kids and, and uh, Billy O'Connell. Uh, Billy Connell was great. Yeah. Uh, I was, I was, yeah, gonna, I was, was, I was wondering if you did it with the Billy years or the, uh, or the Howard Hessman years. What's that? Yeah. I was wondering, yeah, I was wondering if you did it with the Billy years or the Howard Hessman years. Yeah. Cause yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, this was, no, this was just Billy Connell. Yeah. Cause, and, uh, and it, it was great. It was, it was, you know, yeah. it was a nice show. What's interesting about being a director on a show, if you're not the regular director, like a James Burroughs, who, you know, when he shoots, he says, well, of course I'm going to do the whole show. And yeah. they go, yes, yes, James, you know, because he does Cheers and he does, you know, he created all of these shows. Um, when you're just the regular hired, you're a hired gun when you come in as a director and you do a whole bunch of shows because those actors, this again, it's their nine to five job. Yeah. You're not, ab- you're not about to change the way anything happens. You're basically trying to service the show to make the show look and feel like the show always looks and feel you're not, you're not reinventing the wheel. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's strange. And you meet, you know, the actors become really sort of interesting because this, they become those characters. And we did that when I did growing pains, uh, um, yeah. Kirk Cameron was right in the 
towards the beginning of his being a born again Christian, and uh, and the, the rest of the cast hated it. Yeah, I mean, they, they just <laughs> hated it. And one of the reasons why was it is wrapped up in the story that happened to me. He he was supposed to walk in. He's looking for his girlfriend who's got a job to go down to Bermuda for a week and do whatever she did for a job. And he's really nervous about her going off. And and she and he walks into a store where he heard he was she was going to be. And there's like bathing suits. Okay. So the, the idea is he looks at this. There's a mannequin with a bathing suit on it, a conservative bathing suit, not a real, you know, a bikini, but yeah. not really a thong. Um, and he looks up at the mannequin and it's made out of straw. You're only seeing like from the neck to the waist. It's not even a, a, a human being looking mannequin. It's just <laughs> a straw female figure. And he looks up at it, and there's a camera shot. The camera shot turns to what he's looking at, which is just the uh, uh, this mannequin with a bathing suit on, and looks back to his worried face that he was he's going to be his girlfriend is going to be running around in one of these in a in Bermuda. Yeah, he's concerned, and he comes to me after we rehearse it. He says, "Listen, you can't show the two of us in the same camera shot." I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't want a two shot of me and the mannequin in the same shot. <laughs> and that pause that I just gave. Yeah. <laughs> you just witnessed the silence. Yeah. Was, okay, ha, ha, what? What? <laughs> so I could sew his face and then I could do a cutaway to the bathing suit and then back to his face being concerned. But I couldn't show them together in the same shot. Wow. And I said, okay, Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> don't want to be seen with a half-naked mannequin? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's just, that's insane. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. We all, yeah. I had one other funny story yeah. during the show. During rehearsal, we were doing what's called the tease at the beginning of the show. You know, the first minute or so where yeah. actors are doing something and then <gasps> what something happens and they roll the credits. This is, he's teaching his class. Kirk is teaching a class. I don't know what subject it was. <laughs> oh, I just had a bad joke come into my head. Um, <laughs> that I'm totally going to ignore. Uh, and the principal's supposed to come in and hand him a note. And, uh, and he's supposed to take the note and open it and read it. And it, then it's a shot of his concerned face about what's in this note. And then they roll credits. So I'll go, okay, well, we do the scene. He's teaching the class. The principal comes in. Uh, here you go, Kirk, or whatever his character's name was. Here, uh, here's here's the note. You got to read this. And he and he takes. He looks at the note. He looks at the principal. He looks at the note. He looks away, concerned. He looks back at the note, and then he reaches forward and he takes the note. And he opens it up, and he looks concerned. Scene. I say, uh, Kirk, uh, I, I'm in a booth. I'm actually a hundred yards away from yeah. in a booth looking at all of the cameras because that's just the way the studio was set up and i said kirk listen can you can you speed it up just a little bit you know look at the note and you know take it and then look concerned when you're doing it because this is taking like you know three and a half minutes for you to actually take the note out of the sky's hand uh and he we do it again guy comes in here's the note got to read it he looks at the note he looks at the principal he looks at himself he looks around he's very concerned he takes the note and he that happens like three times. And each time I'm saying, Kirk, can you speed it up just a little bit? Can you take the note a little faster? Because 
there's a lot of you just kind of looking around. And okay, roll it. He does the same thing again. <laughs> it takes forever <laughs> to take the note out of the guy's hand and look concerned. And I'm in the booth and I, I'm a hundred yards away from him. And I yell at the at the monitors I'm looking at, take the damn note. <laughs> and on four cameras, I see Kirkman's head turn and look towards the camera. And oh, I went, wow. oh God, can he hear me? <laughs> And in real life, he couldn't, but one of the boom guys had gotten off of his boom and took his headset and put it down on the boom and walked away so he could hear me yelling <laughs> through, through the, the headset. <laughs> and I, I went, oh, God, I am so dead. Oh, and I went and apologized. I said, I'm sorry, I'm having an off day. And it was gone. But there was something about seeing four heads of Kirk Cameron kind of turn like, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a scary thought. <laughs> scary thought. Yeah. Um, was uh, Leo DiCaprio on the show when you did it, or was that? Yes. Uh, yeah. He was on the show. As a matter yeah. of fact, he was on the show. It was a weird thing. The the producers came to me, and they said, "Listen, can you make this guy funny?" I said, "You want me to make Leo DiCaprio <laughs> funny? You know, he's like eight years old. I think he's like ten years old." And uh, I said, I said, listen, guys, he's not this kind of actor. Yeah. And I could see, you know, I talked to him. I, we said, I actually directed him in Lassie before this. He was a sidekick <laughs> to the kid with the dog, you know, so, so I'd already yeah. worked with Leo. I'm the only director in the world who's actually worked with Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio twice in two different TV shows. <laughs> How about that for a that, credit? That's nice. Um, and he never calls. Snow no. of a gun. Never, <laughs> never calls. Uh, I said, Leo's not this kind of actor. He doesn't know the sitcom rhythm. He doesn't know the acting style of sitcoms. It's not, you know, because there's an acting style. Yeah. You know, it's like doing commercials. You don't do in commercials what you do on stage, what you do on television, what you do in movies. They're all different ways of performing the craft. Uh and sitcoms have a specific rhythm and a you know yeah. specific dialogue exchange and stuff like that. And during the the time that I was shooting the show, he got came in and said, "I got the movie." And I said, "What do you got?" He said, "I'm doing uh, what was it, Boys Town with Robert De Niro, Boys something, Boys Boys Life." I forget. I think it's, I forget I think what it's, it's a, a boy movie. a boy's life or something like that. I think a boy, yeah, like a boy's life, yeah, yeah. something like that. And it was going to be his first movie with Robert De Niro as the star. Mm. And I went to the producer and I said, this is the kind of actor he is. Yeah. He's he's he, he's going to do fine in movies. And of course, I'm right. And of course, he never calls. Um, <laughs> so, to hell with him. <laughs> and, 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 you know, if you see like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he learned how to be funny, but just different funny than sitcom funny, which is good. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know. And that's the thing. He's, well, he's a movie. He's a movie funny, not a... <laughs> Well, actually, he's not really a movie funny. Yeah, that was a, that was actually a funny movie. Yeah, but the first time he was actually funny in the movie was the, uh, um, oh God, uh, the movie of the businessman. Uh, the, oh God, I just Wolf, forgot the movie. Wolf of Wall Street or Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, when he does the when he does the, when the drugs kick in while he's on the telephone, and he has to crawl out of the hotel 
and get into the car. And he has this whole sequence <laughs> of five minutes of, of stump crying, cry, trying to get to the car and crawling on the floor, but totally drugged out. Yeah. It was the first time I went, okay, Leo, yeah. comedy 101, babe. Exactly. <laughs> that, that was really good. And you got him started on that. No, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I taught him everything you knew. Went from growing pains to stardom. And he never calls. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, all of that was uh, great. Now I'm up here in Bend. Yeah. Uh, retired. Bend is great. There's actually a light snow on the ground this morning. Oh, wow. Very lovely. Really great town. Uh, Central Oregon, beautiful mountains, outdoors, all these jocks that climb mountains and mountain bike and stuff. Uh, and me and uh, and Karen, because we don't do any of that stuff. <laughs> uh, but I loved it. But I'm teaching improv now. And uh, I mean, War Babies was really a, a great experience in our life. War Babies was like 15 years, 15, 20 years of my life, yeah. where we were a really recognizable co company in L.A. We had a theater. We got a theater every Wednesday night. We'd show up. The place was always packed. They always saw a different show. And we presented uh, improv as a, uh, as a theatrical experience. When you go away from L.A., and actually a lot of times in L.A., but when you go out in L.A., I mean, like when I first came up to Ben, I saw three improv companies up here that were here. And they were doing Whose Line Is It Anyway? Yeah. Comedy. Not improv. Those guys, I know two of those guys. They're really funny. They're really great. What they do is great. But what they're doing is going for jokes. Yeah. And they really know how to do that. I just interviewed Greg Proops yesterday from the show. Yeah. So, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean they're they're real they're really great. They're great, but that's yeah. not improv. Improv is taking suggestions from the audience and creating scenes mm -hmm. with a beginning, middle, and end of yeah. all that stuff. And that's what we did. And when I what I learned as life went on, uh, and uh, retired and, and you know teaching this class and starting an improv company up here, is um, is that the rule. Rules of improv. Most people think that improv is just people being funny on stage, and that's not it at all. There's actual rules that we all listen to in our heads. That once you learn them, that becomes part of your style. That becomes part of your life. If you and I, uh, Mike, are on stage uh, doing a scene, my job is to take care of you. Your job is to take care of me, and together we build a scene. Yeah. If one of us starts doing jokes, starts doing shtick, the scene dies. But as long as we take care of ourselves, we can go from A to B to C to D to applause curtain. Uh, what I discovered in my life is that the rules of improv are also uh, the rules of life. I teach a class called uh, uh, Improv for Life, where if you learn the rules of improv and you practice them and you do them, you find out that you can apply this to your life because your life is improvised. You know, you and I have been talking for an hour, whatever, yeah. how long this has been. And uh, we don't have any cue cards. No. We don't have any script. We don't have anything. And if you can take the rules of improv and apply them to your life skills, it's communication, it's trust, it's uh, building scenes. You know, building scene is going in and asking a boss for a raise. That becomes a scene in your life. 
uh, checking out at the uh, at the supermarket. That's a scene in your life between you and the cashier. If you do those rules, all of a sudden things happen to your life where you're now building successful scenes that comprise your life story. And I teach him, I teach the improv, but I also throw in, and this is how it applies to your life. You know, if you do this, and I find it fascinating. And what's great up here is that the other improv groups up here were just, as I say, were, were terrible. They were doing whose line is it anyway, and they aren't those guys. You know, yeah, those I mean, guys know how to do it. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, they're, they're great at it, but you got to be, you know, <laughs> those guys for yeah, it you, to work. Well, really you've well. got you got to learn the theatrics of doing improv, yeah. not just not jokes. Mm-hmm. It's not doing jokes. And up here, when I was down in L.A., everybody was in an improv class. They wanted to get a pilot. They wanted to get a manager. They wanted to get on stage. <laughs> you know, they wanted to learn improv because apparently everybody has to know it. Up here, they're all civilians. You know, I've, I've been teaching the Facebook, the CEOs up here. Facebook and Google are big up here. They have databases off in the woods somewhere <laughs> where everybody communicates. And their moms and dads, their daughters, their school kids, their whatever they are, they're civilians. They're not going to be doing this in show business. But I'll tell you, by the sixth, by the fifth, sixth class, all of a sudden you can see them changing. And they're doing... And they end up by the, the time the class is finished over the period of time. They're they're doing stage worthy improvisational comedy, and they realize it. You know, you can see them when they finish doing a scene after you know rehearsing you know, after uh, practicing for a while that something has clicked inside their head where they go, oh, okay, you know, I let I lived in the moment. I created a scene about, you know, a cop and a prostitute in Disneyland uh, stuck in. It's a small world after all, right? Whatever the, whatever the givens were. Yeah. And I, and I, and I teach them, you play that reality of being the cop and the prostitute stuck on the ride in Disneyland. And that's going to be funny. You don't have to make jokes. Yeah. It's the situation. And once it's the they situation. get to, it's the situation. It's actually situation comedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the real situation comedy. So I'm enjoying it a lot because the people up here, they really get it and they really learn it. And I can't wait to put together a company up here that's going to be called Around the Bend. <laughs> nice. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> and I picked a couple of the uh, a couple of the improv guys from some of the other groups and a couple of civilians, you know, civilians from the class who were actually really good. And we're going to do improv up here in Bend as soon as this COVID thing is finished. And uh, I think Bend is going to be pleasantly surprised by what improvisational theater really looks like. I can't that's, wait. That's cool. Yeah, I I, uh, I find people that know how to do like real improv tend to be better at even like written dialogue, like where they can actually bring life to it in a way that is beyond what's on the script. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, I've, I've directed a few features myself, but nothing, nothing huge. And most of the people are amateurs that I've worked with, but the few that I've worked with that I know, know what they're doing. I can tell they have a little bit of an improv background. So that's always, you know, yeah, it's, it's literally being in the moment. It's, it's, it's the process of turning off your brain and just being in that immediate moment without any thoughts about 
what's going on, what's outside the world, what happened, you lost your keys this morning, your wife is on your, uh, you know, is on your back arguing with you, whatever it is, you just, you're the cop in the prostitute in Disneyland, yeah. stuck on a ride. And that's your reality. You create your own reality. And if you can do that for your whole life, you've created a pretty good life. <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was trying to apply that because I, I finally got back to acting myself because I used to act on in stage and did a uh-huh. couple movies here and there. But I was doing a little bit of acting right before COVID hit. And right. uh, I was playing the kind of villain of my friend's autobiography film that he was making. And uh, so I just kind of was just trying to become the jerk that he wanted me to be in the in the in the moment, you know, as I was doing it. Because but right. I but but I figured out why the guy because I kind of knew the guy he was based on so i kind of knew why he was the way he was so i just basically right, used, okay. used that to you know <laughs> well you've got a good motivation. look for a character you have a good look yeah. for a character actor yeah <laughs> i mean you look good yeah it was, it was you can play that part <laughs> it was fun i just hope we can finish that movie once covid is done but <laughs> yeah really oh god this covid thing is just it just killed me yeah, I was. Uh, sure. Pui, pui, pui. No, yeah. it didn't yeah. kill me. No, still alive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like I, uh, I unfortunately I was filming two movies myself that I was that I was that I was uh, producing oh, and uh, no. directing and those, and then uh, and then sadly a couple weeks ago my uh, assistant director passed away. So he. So that was that the guy. Was that the guy on the? I saw you on fa- on Facebook. Yeah, that was your friend? Yeah, 30, oh. 36 years old. He just passed. Oh away. man. Yeah. I don't know. Was that because of COVID? Or was no, that... he kidney issues he's had his whole life. So, yeah. Yeah. Probably that's the, sad. the best guy I've ever known. But, you know, and it just sucked that, you know, oh, this I'm this sorry, year, th- this year has just been horrible. But, yeah, but oh, it, it's man. okay. Yeah. 2020. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait for you to leave. I know. Oh, Ho- hopefully, 2021 is better. And, uh, you know. <laughs> well, the first 20 days might be still tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once we can get a, a new regime in. Yeah. God. So um, anything else that you'd uh, want to – oh, oh I, I got an – actually, I had a question for you. What kind of advice would you give to somebody that was interested in like, just getting into acting, not necessarily professionally or anything, like what they should do that might be listening? Well, I'm, I'm sure, you know, in, in almost any – I mean, you know, I'm in a town here of 100,000 people. And, and Bend is, you know, considered a small town. Yeah. It's really 100,000 people. Uh, you know, we've got all, you know, we've got Best Buy and we've got Bed Bath & Beyond and we've got Costco and all that stuff. But then we got Woods and Mountains. So in any town, you should be able to find, I really do recommend improv. Uh, improv if you can find somebody with some credits and monitor a class or so, and see that there is a, a construction to the improv where it's not, you don't have to be funny, you will actually be funny uh, if you play the reality of the situation. Because what you get from an audience, you know, a, a, priest, a priest and a nun in a spaceship uh, looking for food, you know, whatever that is given from the audience, just play the reality of that. And if you can get into an improv class, Peter Rieger came from our class. I don't know if came, yeah. it was in the war 80s. Okay, so he did Animal House and he did, you know, yeah. the local hero and all that stuff, did a bunch of movies. And um, he credits war babies with actually learning how to act, which is being in the moment. It is, it is turning off your brain to all of the stuff on the outside and trying to find that spontaneity between your thoughts. 
And when you can hit that spontaneity, you are now creating something. When you're not, when you're doing something that you have never thought about, have never been in that situation, but you create it. If you can find an improv person who teaches that style and is not doing whose line is it anyway and how to do jokes, uh, you will learn to be an actor. I mean, you should, you absolutely should do it if you want to. Listen, I always wanted to be an actor. I thought I was too ugly to be an actor. I didn't know anything about acting. And I went on to have a really successful career as a character actor. I even started a very short-lived sitcom um, and did hundreds of commercials, literally. Uh, and improv helped you help me doing that. Yeah. Because you you learn how to put a little life into your character when you're doing a 26-second scene uh, of a commercial. And what they're looking what you have to remember as an actor is the people looking at you to hire you, they want you to be the person. They are dying that they can say, tell everybody else to go home. So they want you. Don't be nervous about it. Be in the moment. Be how you think that character can be. And they will hire you. And whatever the job is, don't worry about being nervous because they want you. <laughs> they, they're on your side yeah you know um and i wish everybody luck i mean yeah. go do it that's that's good advice um well uh what then, else mike um what else uh, you want to talk about i don't know um what uh what, so what was the sitcom that you did that you you were short-lived sitcom it was the life and times of eddie roberts it okay. was supposed to it was supposed to be a white collar version of mary hartman with the same uh with the same producers actually oh, okay who, who put together instead of being a, a blue collar town i was a college professor and uh it, and we dealt with white collar problems and stuff and it was it was pretty bad <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it was supposed to start at 11 o'clock at night like mary hartman did yeah uh, and, uh, you know, we started at 11 o'clock and after about three weeks, we were kind of at 1130. And about two weeks after that, we were sort of at 230 <laughs> in the morning. And it just, it faded pretty, we did 13 episodes and you're shooting an episode a day. Oh, wow. So you're, so you're really, you know, again, improv helped that because if you screw up a line a little bit, they didn't want to edit. They wanted, <laughs> they didn't want to spend the time editing. So, so, so was it was it like say, a day a daily show then or was it uh yeah it was no, at night yeah it was so 11 o'clock every, every night, night. Oh, mary wow. hartman, mary hartman. yeah I, I know that mary hartman yeah i wasn't yeah. sure that this was too yeah that's crazy yeah and uh <laughs> and i didn't it, it it was it was it was a great experience but when i saw the end result i said wow <laughs> this and then i i recently got actually i had some fans actually send me some uh I actually have fans. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't believe it. What's wrong with these people? Um, send me some uh, Mary Hartman stuff that they had done. You know, uh, not Mary Hartman, uh, Life and Times of Eddie Roberts. Yeah. It was called Late, Later, L-A-T-E-R, Life and Times of Eddie Roberts. Oh, wow. <laughs> For, hey, huh? That was, that's clever. Clever, <laughs> clever stuff. <laughs> now, the dialogue was kind of like that, too. Oh. <laughs> uh, and I looked at it again, and I saw that me and my TV wife um, really weren't that bad. What we were saying wasn't really all that good. 
So I have to forgive myself after all these years because I thought yeah. when I first saw I told my manager, I said, you, I can't watch the show. I, I'm too busy doing stuff. So you watch the show and you tell me if I'm doing too much, if I'm overdoing it, if, you know, if anything's wrong, if I should change something. And she watched it. And then the show came on and I looked at it and went, oh, God, this is so bad. <laughs> These people are, and I'm so bad. And I said, what's wrong with you? I told you to tell me what was going on. She said, I was just so enthralled by the whole process. I said, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Your job is not to be enthralled by the process. It's to look after me and tell me what's going on. Uh, but it was fun. Uh, Udonna Power played my wife. She was great in the show. I thought she was lovely. She should have been a big star. Oh, it was wow. too bad. Both of us looked at each other before we were starting and said, this is it. This, this, this is stardom. This is going to be Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Man. People are going to know who we are. And, <laughs> oh no oh well right down the tubes no it taught me humility yeah well, that's always a good thing to learn i think so yeah and you know and karen and i worked out a couple of times we did we literally did love american style the a couple of times i think as boyfriend girlfriend and stuff and yeah. so we did work she did a lot of work and she had like seven shows mostly gary marshall shows Nice. That were thirteen week wonders, you know. Just, yeah, <laughs> and I went, well, boom, and gone. And uh, but she did work. Yeah, Gary Marshall was a lot more prolific than people, you know, realize because everybody just knows the core like four or five that he was famous for. And then, but I I looked at his credits and I know he did a lot of different sitcoms. So and and he was also a, yeah. a good actor. You yeah, know? he was. He, he actually he had a certain persona about himself that he knew how to play that Brooklyn. Jewish guy, yeah, he knew how, he knew how to do that, and he was he was good. He was a and he was also, uh, bless Gary, was really a great guy. I mean, he was really a genuinely nice guy. He and Norman Lear, uh, yeah, were great guys. Norman Lear was was terrific to work for it all in the family, and we've been kind of friends ever since, which oh, wow. is absurd. He, he's Norman Lear. <laughs> You know, well, if you go to my website, you know, you'll see that he did a little video for War Babies. Wow. Uh, for, you know, out of nowhere. The funniest thing about him is I'm talking to him in the office and I bring in a little script. We're going to do like a 30 second, a minute bit that's actually going to be on the stage. It was about War Babies. It was a play I wrote about the works of War Babies, all of our set pieces over 30 years put together in one, in a play, in a play yeah. form. And he was going to be on the TV screen. I had Gary Marshall do it, and Joel Zwick did it. A couple of wow. my friend directors and stuff did did stuff about War Baby, sort of trashing us a little bit, yeah. in, a, in a funny way. You know? <laughs> and so I asked Norman if he went to his office, set up the camera, and I gave him a script, and he said, "I don't think I'm going to do this," which is pretty much what Gary Marshall said too. He said, "I'll just, yeah. said, I'll just make up something," and I said, "Okay, fine." And so uh, it's a it's sort of a fake interview. And basically what, what Norman's bit was, is he, he literally was saying to, to camera, saying that everything he learned about comedy and how to perform, he got from War Babies. <laughs> and he was doing it with a dead straight face. He said, I owe my entire career to War Babies. You know, I hired some, I hired some of them. On my, they taught me how to do timing. They, and then at the end, of course, I have to pay him money for him having said this <laughs> that's, nice. that's the end of the bit um 
So he, uh, so he's sitting there. And we're talking about what we're going to do. And I said, I said, okay. Oh, it says my internet connection is unstable. Are you there? Oh, I'm still here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, he he's wearing you know like a baseball hat. He says, okay, we're we're about to roll. I said, fine. He goes into his closet and he puts on puts off takes off his baseball hat and puts on the Norman Lear hat. Yeah. That, that little pork pie hat that you always mm-hmm. see him in. And I thought, wow, he's playing Norman Lear. <laughs> the the guy is actually going to put on the hat that we all know Norman Lear wears, and uh, because normally he just wears a baseball hat. Oh wow! I thought, wow. I said, this is great. Yeah, he's... I got Norman Lear here. He's going to play Norman Lear. Fantastic. He's he's truly an, an American icon. I mean, he's just I think probably one of the I don't know greatest television producers of all time and everything i mean i don't know he's one of my early heroes when i was looking into like because i've always been obsessed with television so <laughs> and movies and everything yeah, well, he's, so, yeah. he's, he's really astounding especially yeah. when you think of you couldn't get his shows on the air today no nobody would put archie bunker on the air today and even uh it, it, and, and even the uh, sadly the and, the one one day at a time revival that he was working on as a executive oh. producer which was pretty good, just got canceled for the second time. Yeah. Yeah. It just, yeah. It, it, it's, it's just, it's strange. These times we're in, mm. you know, you couldn't do Maud. You couldn't no. do the Jeffersons. You couldn't do any of those shows no. today, you know, or anything even approximating those shows. No, I mean, so strange. I mean, there, there's luckily a lot of good television out there, but it's still, it's like different unfortunately i mean it's just it's for better or worse it just depends i mean a lot of people are too sensitive but then there's also people that are not sensitive enough on the other side too so it's kind of yeah <laughs> you got you yeah, know, no, that, that, yeah. It, no it's totally true yeah. on, almost on both sides yeah sometimes i look at some liberal shows and i go really guys really yeah. like, this, this is what you're this is what you're selling the two and then i look yeah. at <laughs> Look at conservative shows and you go, really, guys? Come on, seriously? <laughs> this is what you're selling? Yeah, uh, yeah it's it's an odd it's it's an odd phenomenon. Yeah, um, and it should be just you know funny stuff. If it can be political, that's fine. I mean, I always find it interesting that there's no literally no conservative type comedy. No, they're not. They're not funny. Yeah. You know, they just, you know, like Dennis Miller was a huge liberal until he been very funny. And then he went yeah. conservative and he just died. You know, yeah. he just, and it wasn't because, oh, liberals didn't like him. He wasn't funny. No. The trouble is, if I can get political for a second. Oh, is, yeah, I can go ahead. <laughs> comedy has to have truth in it. Yeah. If you don't have truth in comedy, it's not funny. And what the conservatives put out, in my opinion, is not true and therefore you can't actually make fun of you a conservative can't be funny they just can't be there's no there's naming a conservative comedian maybe a conservative you know there are some actors who can play you know the the uh uh you know the bruce willis's and, uh, and those yeah. guys who are conservative can play funny yeah you know and, and they can do that because they're good but when you try to find a, a funny conservative show, good luck. Yeah, I mean, most most shows with a conservative bent are usually dramas. That's not, you know, that are on yeah. TV. Yeah, so, yeah. 
it's uh i mean which you know some of them are good too but you know like i don't know like blue bloods has a has a conservative bent but for some reason i love that show so um yeah well because it's well done it's well done the characters are believable yeah it's well shot the dialogue is good uh and sometimes there's a there is some humor in it but you know it's not coming from tom Selleck. no and (laughs) yeah the he's uh, not funny no (laughs) (laughs) i mean he's he's good at what he does oh yeah He's He's, he's he's yeah and um yeah, it's it's just yeah, and it's it's like the the few like uh as far as like stand up goes, even like the few like conservative comics are more of these like white, this like redneck uh you know blue collar comedy type uh you know Larry the Cable Guy and stuff like that. So they're not and they're they're not even funny. <laughs> they think they are, but they're not. Yeah, I, I I've never actually gotten the humor of Larry the Cable Guy. No, we uh we have a even when I care. We, we watch a lot of direct-to-video sequels on this show and do uh-huh. critiques of them and yeah he's done a few and then they're uh they're they're they are fun 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 to watch because of how bad they are but um <laughs> <laughs> well, okay well there there is always that actually. yeah that, that, that that's good that's the that's only true. that's the only benefit of uh, larry the cable guy unfortunately <laughs> but but uh, yeah <laughs> to be honest <laughs> oh, but, yeah God. no but anyways um I don't know. I just don't want to take up too much more of your time here. Um, and um, so, any anything else? Yeah, you want I to have say? to hit the. I have to hit the slopes, uh, like. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. You know, I figured. Yeah. You, know, you gotta go go climb a mountain or. Uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's what I do. <laughs> Build a skyscraper or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's no, yeah. it's been great. Yeah. Uh, I said, uh, I, I uh, this is the first time that you and I have actually met, even yeah. though we're. Facebook friends. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love what you write and I love what you do. I haven't seen, you know, any of your movie stuff. Yeah. And apparently you haven't either because you had to stop. <laughs> <It's just laughs> uh, I'll have to send you some links to the ones I actually completed sometime, but yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're real low budget, but okay. <laughs> yeah. No, you, yeah. you can do it. Listen, I've written a bunch of scripts that have won awards. None of them ever done. Yeah. And I, and I literally have, sometimes purposely written the script to say, okay, here's one you can spend a hundred million dollars on. This is going to be, this is going to be romancing the stone. Okay. It's going to be action, adventure, comedy, you know, and if you want to spend the money for the speed boats and to shoot it in Barcelona and, you know, where I put the action uh, and do all that terrific. Here's one you can do for a dollar a quarter. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you can shoot it and bend. (laughs) Yeah. uh, So these are things that you, you know, you have to consider when you're doing these kind of movies. If you're doing these uh, low budget independents, you can do some good work doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyways, thank you for your time. And it was great to great to finally meet you in person or kind of in person, if you know what I mean. And um, the uh, (laughs) yeah, I'll I'll definitely. uh, No, no. Get out of it yourself. Yeah. Have to have to. <laughs> in person on Zoom, and um, if uh, yeah, hopefully, if anything comes up and you ever want to come back on the show, just uh, let me know anytime. Definitely. Believe me, I got plenty of time. Mike. Yep. I'll okay. see you next week. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. Yep. Have a good night. Bye bye. Okay, that was uh, my interview there with Rennie Temple. Um, a lot of insight there into uh, the world of entertainment and um, beyond. Um, some interesting stories there about Kirk Cameron. 
um, and basically how much of a douchebag he is. And, um... <laughs> which, uh, which, which tell, to this day, he still is. I mean, back in, yeah. back in December, he, uh, was, uh, doing some bullshit there with, uh, trying to, uh, you know, basically spread COVID in California with having a bunch of people, uh, um, do a protest slash Christmas carol. Well, yeah, because God will heal you. You don't need science, you know. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and plus, too, you know, he, he, you know, he, he totally, you know, owned the atheist, you know, with his banana, you know, theory. So, you know, checkmate yes. atheist. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Anyways, um, that was kind of cool to find out. Also, stuff about Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, mm-hmm. other people that uh, Rennie's worked with. Um, and. Frankie and Annette and other people that he talked about um, had a long career there. Um, and he's mm-hmm. uh, doing some uh, great stuff up in uh, Oregon. And uh, hopefully um, you all enjoyed that in- interview. Um, if you uh, could, uh, please uh, check out our Patreon, our uh, Facebook, our rest of our social meds. And um, <laughs> be sure to, uh, you know, follow us everywhere. Yeah. Like you're a stalker. Well, wait. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but, you know, <clears throat> we've got lots of episodes. We're, you know, continue, you know, pretty consistent in our output, so there's always going to be something cool, you yes. know. And uh, if this is your first time listening, thank you. Yeah. Thank you a lot, actually. Yes. And uh, we'll have some uh, links in the show notes to a bunch of cool stuff, um, some charities and stuff you can donate to as well during uh, the hard times that the world's going through. Um, and that, you know, certain governments are, you know, making worse. Yes. <laughs> we'll find out. Hopefully by the time this airs, things are better. Who knows? Um, anyways... Um, <laughs> Um, anyways, uh, thanks for listening and, uh, bye. <laughs> thanks for listening to All Too Real 2 Podcast, a Cullen Park production. Produced and edited by Michael E. Cullen II. Music by Matthew Haas. Subscribe and share the show. Visit us at CullenPark.com. Yeah.